0: Episode 198, The Trend Toward Direct-to-Employer ACOs. Today, I speak with Eric Parmenter, the National Leader of Value-Based Care at Collective Health.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value
0: there are three kinds of accountable care organizations, or ACOs. An ACO, by the way, is when a healthcare network, primarily, takes on risk and gets paid for value instead of the old FFS fee-for-service model. The first kind of ACO is the original Medicare Shared Savings Program kind of ACO. In 2018, CMS listed 561 ACOs and 10.5 million assigned beneficiaries. So it is a program that's that's going strong. Then there is the carrier ACO, where your traditional insurance carrier sets up an ACO and employers pay the carrier to use it. Lastly, we have the direct-to-employer kind of ACO where an employer sets up an ACO directly with a local provider. Today I speak with Eric Parmenter, the national leader of value-based care at Collective Health, and we talk about the direct to employer kind of ACO. My name is Stacy Richter and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Eric.
1: Great, Stacy. I'm very happy to be here today.
0: One of the oddities in the healthcare industry is that the buyers, i.e. generally speaking employers, let's just say in this case, and the sellers of healthcare services, i.e. generally speaking health systems, let's just say in this case, are disintermediated from each other by a third company, you know, a third party often called the insurance carrier, (laughs) or maybe the TPA. So just to level set, since listeners of this podcast are probably largely aware, or could easily guess what the consequences of that disintermediation might be, but could I get you to talk about maybe some of the few biggies?
1: Happy to, even though we have a lot of experienced people in our audience, I see this as a very common mistake, where People on the provider side refer to the insurance companies like Aetna, Cigna, United, all the Blue Cross plans, Kaiser as payers. And I think it's a remnant of the fact that they are, you know, writing the checks, if you will, but they're really not the payers. They're the facilitators of payments with somebody else's money, right? So if you're a self-funded employer, you are the payer. And so I would argue an employer is not only the buyer, they are the payer. And, oh, by the way, they've outsourced some of that to a TPA, a third party administrator, or a carrier, or they have accessed a network to get certain pre-negotiated pricing. But the real parties to the equation are the buyer and the seller, which is the employer, and to some extent, the employee, of course, and then the providers, the doctors, the hospitals, the labs et cetera.
0: What's the problem there? And I almost look at it as the principal agent problem, if I was going to sort of summarize how I sort of see it, in which case, owing to either the costs incurred or the incentives that are possible, the agent, i.e., in this case, the insurance carrier might begin to pursue their own agenda and kind of ignore the interests of the principal, which in this case would be the employer, which is kind of a common you know, consequence of situations, like I think the one that you were just describing. As it relates to the healthcare industry, how does this manifest? Maybe there's upsides or I mean, what's the downside?
1: There's multiple problems when the buyer and the seller are running through a third channel, which is this you know, carrier, third-party network type arrangement, If that third party is not acting on behalf of the best interest of both the buyer and the seller, which I think is all too often the case. And so what are some common examples of this? One would think that the the network builders of the world would be looking to negotiate the lowest price of services for their end customer, the employer. And if the employer has hired that network company, call it what you will, a, a carrier, to Negotiate the best prices for healthcare services for their employees. In fact, that's the common portrayal of that function is to have large networks negotiate the best prices. But the reality is those prices are often three to 500% higher than Medicare, higher than what the government pays for the same services. And you would think that the employers would push back on that, but I don't think they're fully aware that they're paying multiples of the real cost of services, even with fair margin built in. It's because the providers of healthcare and the negotiators of networks aren't really trying to get to the lowest price. They're trying to get to a price that is best for both of them, which frankly is as high as it can possibly be, just a little bit lower than their next closest competitor. It's kind of like the analogy of if a bear is chasing you, you really don't have to be the fastest runner. You just have to be a little bit faster than the (laughs) slowest runner.
0: Yeah. And to that end, I think uh, most know that the hospital prices have risen, what is it, like 3.5 times the increase in inflation or GDP over the past couple of years because it's possible to do that. Obviously, if you're a rational actor a, and you have the possibility to do something, then...
1: That's right. And you know, if you think about the inflation in healthcare costs, which is multiples of regular inflation, healthcare eats wages. Why are we talking about such a booming economy with virtually full employment, but yet at the same time, wages are flat? They're just starting to eke up a little bit it's because healthcare eats wages. And so when the employer has to pay five to 10% more every year on the cost of healthcare benefits, that's less money that they can give to employees in raises and other forms of cash compensation or equity compensation. And so it's not obvious why wages are flat, but if you really look at the drivers of total compensation for an employer, healthcare eats wages.
0: Yeah, for sure. As an employer, I can tell you that, yes. And some of the things that you had been referring to earlier, you think that a large organization such as an insurance carrier would have the wherewithal or the weight to be able to negotiate the lowest possible price. I mean, I would assume one of the reasons why you outsource the negotiating to this third party. There was this article, I don't know if you saw it, Eric, the other day in the Wall Street Journal. It was entitled, What Does Knee Surgery Cost? Few know, and that's a problem. Where the Wall Street Journal did an this- arm and a leg? <laughs> Very funny. And uh, so, Wall Street Journal did an expose, really, about... Here's the summary. It's a really interesting article, though. So, if any... Buddy hasn't read it yet, I would definitely look it up. First of all, there is a wide variance between what insurance carriers were paying. I mean, one insurance carrier was paying. One hospital was getting 50 grand and another hospital was getting 20. And there was also no relationship between the actual cost of the procedure to the hospital and the price that they were charging. I mean, so basically, so this just validates exactly what you just said. The hospital was setting the price based on what the market would bear instead of a markup of the actual costs.
1: There's so much variance in healthcare, Stacey. In fact, one of the leading luminaries on the variance in healthcare is Dr. Atul Gawandi, who is now going to lead the Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, Morgan Chase joint venture. And he wrote some groundbreaking articles that really exposed the variance in cost and quality in healthcare And by the way, usually there's a correlation between cost and quality, meaning you expect if the price is higher, the quality must be higher too. But unfortunately, in healthcare, this knee surgery, you could pay 5x for it in one market or even one hospital in the same market than a competitor across town with zero correlation between quality and cost. And so this is just one of unfortunately way too many examples of why employers are starting to say it's time for us to exert more purchasing power to start to migrate from an employer-paid economy in healthcare to an employer-driven economy in healthcare, and that's why the the focus on what Amazon and friends are doing with Dr. Gawande and other very innovative disruptive players in the marketplace are doing. It's to start to empower the employer to say, look, you need to start taking charge of your health care. And one way to do this is to build a relationship with a provider who can take care of your employees. And we talked about the, the lack of a relationship between the buyer and the seller, the employer and the provider. One of the things that happens if you put those two people back into an economy is not only are they negotiating for price and service. Directly, They're sitting across the table from each other and building a relationship. It's important that the providers have a relationship with the purchasers of services. And when they do, they can set common goals. They can start to work toward achieving those goals. They can measure their progress toward those goals. And it really does change the equation.
0: You have a lot of expertise around direct ACOs, as you call them, between employers and providers. And I'm assuming that the vehicle through which a provider and an employer establish their relationship is vis-a-vis a a direct ACO or a similar model. If you were going to describe a direct ACO, what is it and how does it differ from your standard Medicare MSSP ACO?
1: First of all, we probably need to define ACO. So, an ACO is an accountable care organization. It was really codified in the Affordable Care Act. That had nothing to do with employers, that had everything to do with Medicare and Medicare beneficiaries. However, as provider systems began to get ready to manage risk under MSSP and what became other versions of ACOs through Medicare, NextGen, et cetera. Track one, track two, there's all kinds of variations of a Medicare ACO. The providers were building infrastructure to manage populations, not just individual patients, to take risk, meaning to have financial up and downside for how the population turned out from a cost quality perspective. And so then they began to turn their attention away, not away from Medicare in the sense of no longer serving Medicare, but in addition to Medicare to the commercial population. The commercial population heretofore was primarily operating on a fee-for-service model where when a provider does something, they get paid. The more they do, the more they get paid. The more expensive the procedure, the more they get paid. So it's a fee-for-service treadmill in the commercial world and it's a move to value in the Medicare world. And now we're starting to see a slow but steady movement to value through these employer-based ACOs in the employer world, and they really take two forms. One is the carrier ACO, and they may not be called an ACO. They might be called a pay-for-performance program or a narrow network program, but the carrier-based ACOs would be prototype number one. And then the direct ACOs would be prototype number two.
0: Let's focus on... I don't remember if it's the former or latter, but the direct ACO version, (laughs) uh, the latter, there we go. And how an employer might contract directly with a provider. Before I start drilling in here, how pervasive is this? You know, is this something that you've got a couple of bleeding edge employers working on? Or are, are we edging towards the top of the bell curve here?
1: Yeah, I try to avoid using the term "bleeding edge" when we talk about healthcare. But uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: good point. All right. leading, we'll leading edge, <laughs> yes, my work. Leading edge. Let's pretend I said that.
1: Here to large employers like Boeing, like Walmart, like Intel. Large, very sophisticated employers have forged direct. Let's call them ACOs, for lack of a better word, with large leading health systems. And I think the theory was both the large health system and the large employers had enough critical mass of employees, had enough dollars at stake that a direct contract could be put together with an army of consultants, of course, to make this thing work. This wasn't available to a smaller or a mid-sized employer. Because of that, only 3% or so of employers had any type of meaningful direct contract according to in BGH, National Business Group on Health Survey data, up through the last couple of years. Now, however, that number is approaching 6% that are already into direct contracted ACOs with an expectation to grow to closer to 30% over the next few years. 30% of employers are seriously considering a direct contracted ACO. What does that mean? There are networks put in place that are not part of a carrier network, but a network that a provider health system or groups of providers will offer to an employer in their local market and say, hey, if you come to us and not our competitors, we will give you at least three different things that might be of interest. The first thing we'll give you is preferred pricing in our market. The second thing we'll give you is clinical programs to help manage your patients, your employees and their family members who might have diabetes or COPD or some other kind of chronic condition. But we'll do it at the physician level, not at the kind of vendor level. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing we'll do for you is we will we'll put some guarantees around this. Those guarantees might be a trend guarantee, so the cost is guaranteed not to go up by more than X. It might be a PMPM cost guarantee per member per month will not exceed Y. Or it could be a risk corridor that if the the cost of care and the quality metrics are within a certain corridor, we'll share the savings. And if not, the provider will eat some of the uh, overage. Now, that's complicated. However, organizations like the one I'm affiliated with and a few others are facilitating these direct relationships, but not as a carrier, not as a network builder, as a facilitator between two parties who really wanna have a direct relationship.
0: Collective Health, which is your company, in the context of this, what would happen would be, I mean, there'd still be a TPM. So I'm just trying to understand all the players here. So there'd still be a TPA, obviously, who gives insurance cards and does all that kind of thing. And you got the employer and you've got the provider organization. So the employer calls up Collective Health and says, look, there's this big health system that's in our area and their X percentage, meaningful percentage of my budget. I can see that because I'm looking at claims data. Like, I want to make a deal with them. Go. How does this work?
1: Right. So so my organization, Collective Health, in this direct contracted mode, we are the ones who are facilitating all the back office stuff that has to be done to make the direct contract work so that we can say to, you know, employers with a thousand or more employees that doesn't have to be the jumbo jumbo employers, that there's a way for you to have a relationship between a local provider system will help you identify who those provider systems are, will help you set up the arrangements. But the goal here is your people will receive better care at a pre-negotiated lower cost. And if the quality and cost isn't managed appropriately for your population, then the provider will stand behind their claim.
0: From a provider standpoint, what's the why? Why would the provider choose yeah. to willingly assume risk when they haven't in the past or they can get a fee-for-service and make a whole lot more money per unit?
1: That would be crazy, wouldn't it? Why would a provider take risk when they can just collect you know, fee-for-service revenue and take no risk? Now, if the world was were to stay the same, a provider would not take risk, but the world is changing. Providers will take risk. a number of reasons. One is they have to under Medicare. Medicare is moving very rapidly to a place where virtually all care will be tied to some type of quality outcome value-based set of metrics. And so the providers have to invest in infrastructure and procedures, people, process, and technology to survive under a Medicare world that is moving to risk. So it's not a matter of whether they want to take risk. It's a matter of they're going to have to take risk. And then what is risk? Risk is eating financial charges because you didn't deliver against a pre-established goal. And so if the provider cannot provide their services within reasonable, established quality guidelines at a reasonably established cost guideline, then they will the difference. That's the risk that the provider takes. But guess what? If they can do that and exceed those guidelines, there's additional revenue for them. It's a revenue opportunity. It's a a forced function upon them by Medicare. And then last but not least, it's a way to actually increase their market share. Because if an employer says, hey, I'll send all my employees to you for care, then that provider is getting a bigger market share of that employer's claims than they did before where it was spread around the open market.
0: So you just said something interesting that the employer would promise to send all their employees there, which strikes me as reminiscent of the old HMO model where you had Mm -hmm. those super duper, very narrow networks that you kind of couldn't get out of. Is this the reprise?
1: Is an ACO basically an HMO in drag or something (laughs) along those lines? It's just a new version of of an HMO. In a lot of ways, it looks the same, but it is fundamentally different. So, for instance, let's just compare and contrast. HMO is what we call a gatekeeper model. An ACO is not. What does that mean? In a HMO, the primary care provider must make all the referrals to specialists. That's not required under most ACOs. Secondly, an HMO is an insurance product often managed and owned and run by an insurance entity. An ACO is a provider-owned and operated structure. So it's owned and operated by physicians and hospitals. They are not an insurance company. And then thirdly, an ACO pays what is called capitated payments to the providers. What that essentially means is they get paid a certain amount of money per member per month. And then within that capitated flow of dollars, the provider system manages all the care, makes all the referrals, etc. In an ACO, it still could work on a fee-for-service chassis, but modified with some up or down risk elements attached to that. I think the pushback on the HMOs was that it felt like rationing of care Mm -hmm. to some patients. It felt like too prescriptive for some patients. And by the way, there are a lot of HMOs out there today, some of them are performing very, very well. So this is not a knock on HMOs. But the other problem that I think larger self-funded employers are having with HMOs is they still are fully insured products by and large. And what that means is, hey, if the HMO is doing a really good job of managing risk, guess who keeps the money? The HMO, not the self-funded employer who is really the payer. And so in an ACO that's self-funded, even if it's built on a fee for service chassis with elements of downside risk, when there are savings to be had, they go to the employer, not to that insurance entity that's owning and operating the HMO.
0: Is this a direct threat to your traditional insurance carrier? Because it sounds like that the business model of the insurance carrier, especially their TPAing, needs the fundamental change. You had stated earlier that 30% of employers are soon going to, I'm not sure what the time frame was on that stat, but if we're looking at a future where 30% of employers have direct contracts with local providers, you know, you can't just lose 30% of your market share.
1: That's a great question, Stacey. I would view it more as a competition between carrier-based ACOs and direct contracted ACOs. As I mentioned earlier, there are two basic types for employers. Several of the major carriers have come out with their own ACO products. A lot of them are based on attribution models where they attribute patients to doctors, and then they measure the quality scores of the doctors treating those patients. And then there's some kind of a shared savings payment or a pay-for-performance formula for those patients attributed to those doctors. Um, or it might be a, a standalone ACO product that's offered by one of the carriers. And so the carriers have every every reason to participate in the ACO world as much as the direct contracted model. I think it will be interesting to see over time which model wins out. The carriers have a lot of the pieces that are needed to make these programs work. I think they sometimes lack the full understanding of what employers and providers both need to make these things work. And the ones who figure it out and really put creative, innovative products in the market, even though it is a carrier-based product, will do very well. The ones who can't quite get their head around how this is different than a PPO with a little bit of a a twist, I think they're going to struggle getting the kind of membership that they're looking for in these types of arrangements. So I don't think it's necessarily a threat to the carriers as long as the carriers come around to better understanding what it is that employers need.
0: Is there a rate critical here that the employer... So you had mentioned an employer with over a 1,000 individuals. that size of employer, and you know this far better than me, Eric, so I'm going to scramble out on a limb and make up some demographic information. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm going to assume that an employer of that size probably doesn't have, you know, their benefits team does a bunch of different stuff. Like They don't have a dedicated healthcare person who's very familiar with health plans and actuarial data and analytics and informatics and and, and whatnot. So it seems like if you're going to initiate a relationship, direct relationship with a local provider, that there is a certain level of expertise or even just confidence or time, um, which would be necessary from the employer side. Number one, did I assume correctly? And then if so, Is this something that employers are starting to realize, well, maybe we should get a person or are starting to understand is actually a gap and are filling it? Or are we continuing in a situation where the gap's just getting bigger and bigger because nobody's doing anything about filling it and therefore some of these more innovative solutions just simply can't happen?
1: It's a really good question. I think the reason we only have 3% of employers in direct contracts is it is complicated. It does require specialized expertise. And by the way, that expertise hasn't really existed to a large degree in the legacy consulting firms, uh, because this isn't benefits as regularly written. This is a whole different category of doing health benefits. And so I think as employers move forward and are more interested in these models, uh, they will need to work with outside organizations, whether they're specialized in this area or consulting firms that are starting to acquire this expertise by bringing in people who've worked on maybe the Medicare side of ACOs and now can adapt that over to the commercial side. I think employers are going to need some help, both from an administrative perspective and from a consulting and actuarial perspective, to put these deals together. This is not an easy thing to do. But the good news is, it's becoming more available because the consulting firm's And several of the specialized management type firms like ours are really beginning to make this much more accessible and available to employers.
0: And might the reach out model work the other way? So say I'm a provider and I'm good at this. I have, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm hitting my Medicare shared savings goals and maybe I've got other employer contracts in the area. Do you see providers initiating this and reaching out to the NBGH, the National Business Group on Health, or reaching out to local employers directly and saying, hey, let's make a deal?
1: Yes, there are a number of providers who are very actively going direct to employers in their market and others who are looking to do so. There are providers who have very successfully proven they can manage risk. In fact, if you look at the Medicare ACOs, about half of them are saving money for Medicare, the other half are not. So that bodes well to say there are providers out there who have figured out how to manage a population and save money. And by the way, the the half that are not saving money, that doesn't mean they will always <laughs> not save money. If that's the way of talking, it means that they have an opportunity to improve, and eventually they may get there as well. I think that providers sometimes lack what carriers have, and that is. Uh, the ability to do sales and marketing to employers and consultants and brokers and speak the language of employers. I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in with providers where they they talk about payers (laughs) 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 to the offense of the employer who looks at them like, you've got this all wrong. We are the payer. Because providers think about where their revenue comes from at the hands of a third party, quote unquote, payer who sent them a electronic transfer of funds or a check, even though that was just a conduit to the real payer, the employer. So a lot of the providers, even if they have developed the expertise to manage populations successfully and run clinical programs across the population and even to take risk, aren't necessarily good at building employer structures to manage those risks. So that's where kind of the new breed of of tech-enabled firms are coming into play to say, look, We can work with the providers who figured out the clinical side of it. We can work with the employers who really want the direct relationship. We can work with the consultants who get this and really start to bring together more of a direct relationship between employer provider.
0: And how do you measure ongoing success. I could imagine that there has to be some sort of metric going in so that the employer can be confident that what they are signing up for is going to be sustainable because what a pain. Like you go through um, all of the communications that are necessary to educate all the employees and whatnot. And then the provider the next year has realized that they can't (laughs) pull this off or something. And and then number two, obviously you want to know how well everybody did. How do you go about setting up the measurement framework?
1: Well, I would start with the the most basic fundamental metric of of cost. And that may be measured on a per member per month basis or a per employee per year basis. Let's just say the average cost of health benefits per employee per year, according to say some NBGH survey data is $14,000 per employee per year. And they want to offer maybe alongside of their broad PPO, now a narrow network, ACO offering, they should expect that that's going to come in with at least a 10% savings. So that's about $1,400 less than what they're paying per employee per year for the broad PPO. If it's not going to be in that range of savings, the employer probably isn't going to do it because... By definition, it's a narrower network, so fewer choices of providers, and you have to set up a separate plan, either as a choice or, in some cases, a full replacement. You have to educate employees about how it works and that not all the providers that you want are going to be in your network. But if the meaningful savings are there as metric number one, then it can be really powerful. So I would look for at least a 10% savings in an ACO direct product. Secondly, there needs to be a set of quality measures. These can be uh, fairly basic, you know, closing gaps in care. Are people getting their preventative screenings as required by uh, gender and age guidelines? Are people not using the emergency room for non-emergent care? Are people not staying in the hospital longer than necessary? Are people using telemedicine appropriately? Are people using prompt care and primary care appropriately? You know, there's a whole set of metrics that can be put into play. I, I recommend no more than 10 benchmarks around quality. So 5 to 10 really meaningful quality benchmarks plus the savings target. And then the last piece, not to be put into the third spot from a, an importance standpoint, is call it member satisfaction. The member or the employee or their family member should really like this approach. So you need to measure both member and patient satisfaction, not the same thing. Patient satisfaction is measured typically by the provider through scores like Prescani. And patient uh, member satisfaction can be measured through net promoter score and uh, survey data. And so you need to have a, an improved member patient experience. You need to have improved quality and you need to have uh, significantly lower cost.
0: Where can people go to find more information about Collective Health and the work that you are doing over there, Eric?
1: Well, certainly our website, collectivehealth.com is the place to start. Send an email to info at collectivehealth.com. You, my
0: friend, are also the author of a book entitled "Stop Twenty-One Stops to Reduce Stress and Enhance Joy." So, if this conversation has stressed you out, then you should go to <laughs> Amazon and purchase Eric's book.
1: That's right. The book is not about what we just talked about. It's about people that are stressed out in life, corporate America. But I really wrote it from the perspective of people that are stressed out in healthcare, doctors, providers, nurses, etc.
0: I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Eric. My pleasure.